author of Raven Rock, who anyone that's been listening to this podcast, you don't even have to be listening from the beginning. Just anyone who's listened to a podcast in the last 10 episodes of any given time that you're listening to this now, you will know Garrett Graff as Garrett Graff, the author of Raven Rock, which everybody needs to listen to. I cite it all the time. I'm obsessed with your book. I, As you know, I spilled my heart out to you in an email and stars have aligned. We've got it going, but I'm going to stop blabbering and let you introduce yourself, sir. How are you doing? I'm well. I'm well. Thanks so much for uh, your patience in getting this set up, and I'm excited to talk to you. Of course. So, I've also cited a lot of other books, The Threat Matrix, The Last Plane in the Sky, all great books, but Raven Rock has a special place in my heart, and I can say, hand over my heart, that it is my favorite. I like, there's one fiction book I like. So, it is my favorite nonfiction book. I swear over my grandmother, my brother, everyone. It's my favorite nonfiction book. And for everyone listening, it's Really quick summary is it's it's the relocation arc. It's all of the it's all of the nuclear bunkers that the presidents were going to go to in the uh, event of thermonuclear Armageddon, and how the rest of us were going to die. And I was so shocked by it the first time I heard it because everything in it it sounds like it sounds like something you'd hear on like an Alex Jones rant, like. But I was like, this is all research, and I'd pull up citations, and I was like, this is all real. And it's just the whole the whole relocation arc of what it is, from Eisenhower calling JFK or bringing him in in Opal 3 to the beginning of its the, the, the actual rubber casing on the tubing or the plumbing so it doesn't shake around, and you got to tell me work for a phone. I'm sorry, I'm blabbering. I have not, I have not been – I have not got starstruck yet. But I am I'm geeking out right now, so I'll try to take it down a notch. Well, that uh, Tony, that to me is just what makes this whole world um, uh, so fascinating. Is like this is an area where there has been so much science fiction, so much uh, satire. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Doctor Strange yeah. loves you know the preeminent yeah. movie of the Cold War, yeah. And yet at every twist and turn, as I went out and did my research, it, it turns out that actually the truth of all of these government doomsday plans is even stranger than yeah. the fiction and the satire that people came up with along the, along the time. I mean, Dr. Strangelove and all of his, you know, worrying about the mind shaft yeah. gap. <laughs> the mind with, shaft well, gap. Like, Actually, the U.S. government did worry about the mineshaft gap. <laughs> and they went out and they had Boy Scouts map the nation's abandoned mine shafts in the 1940s and 50s. And, like, you could actually get, like, merit badges as a Boy Scout for helping to find, like, mine shafts that the U.S. government could hide civilians in in the event of nuclear war. And, like, you know, just, like, the weirdness of this whole... yeah era and the weird sort of i call it sort of rational irrationality of the planners that like sort of pretend as if like nuclear war is just one three ring binder away from being totally manageable yeah and um you know the way that you have sort of through this whole era all of these government agencies that um, have, you know, what I call sort of their post-apocalyptic analogs. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea 
that through the Cold War, the U.S. Postal Service was in charge of registering the dead and, um, you know, figuring out who was left alive in the United States. (laughs) Um, The idea that the National Park Service was going to be the agency that ran the refugee camps. Yeah. Because they they had the idea that the national parks would be largely untouched by yeah. nuclear war, and that you could go out, you know, to Yosemite, and there'd be this like beautiful refugee camp all set up there, run by the National Park Service after California was destroyed, um, and, and sort of just you know every every page of research that I did sort of came up with facts funnier and weirder than anything that you that a writer could have satirized um you know up to and including um you know probably my you know one of my two or three favorite details in the entire book like the idea that the federal reserve built this bunker in mount pony virginia that held something like two or three billion dollars in currency Uh, that was going to last the United States the uh, 18 months it would take the Bureau of Engraving and Printing to begin to rebuild our currency reserves. Yeah. But then actually much of that money was in $2 bills because this was the 1970s and the U.S. had relaunched and reissued the Thomas Jefferson $2 bill and discovered that Americans like didn't want to use a $2 bill and just like couldn't get people to use it in everyday life. And so rather than pulp it, they packaged up, sealed up all those $2 bills and put them away in the government's doomsday bunker uh, currency reserve, figuring that like after nuclear war, people would be less choosy about what kind (laughs) of currency they were willing to use. Yeah. Yeah, it's yet. The, and then it's also I would, you know, I think it's in like World War Z, that zombie movie, really terrible movie. But it begins with like you can tell like, you know, you can tell like shit's hitting the fan because they're they're getting the Declaration of Independence. They're getting the Liberty Bell. You see them. We're bringing it into the bunker. And it's when I first saw that, I was like, that's that's, you know, that's stupid. But then you go into it and like they had a whole list. And not only that, really, I mean, they had a list thought out and thought through. Like this had priority over that, had priority over that, had priority over that, and that was going to be saved, and this wasn't. And it was like it really was the plan to save the government while everyone else died. It was yeah, like, oh. and, and and there's sort of a um, you know there's an arc to this as mm-hmm. the um, as uh, the the presidency changes as technology yeah. changes as the military changes because in the 1950s 1940s and 50s really um you know time and space existed in such a way that you didn't need this you couldn't have this system on hair trigger alert mm-hmm. and you're talking about um a- atomic uh, atomic bombs delivered by bombers. Mm-hmm. You're talking about something that's going to be six, eight, 10, 12 hours notice. Yeah. You're talking about a scenario where you're, you're looking at a few dozen or a few score mm-hmm. uh, atomic bombs. Um, and 
and and so there's sort of this moment and this change uh, well the, uh, over the course of the beginning of the cold war where people actually sort of imagine a scenario where you could have a survivable yeah. nuclear war yeah. and america goes through this era of the 1950s with these massive national civil defense drills um operation alert yep. um you know the the sort of uh, full scale full city mm-hmm. uh alerts that are unimaginable to us today i mean the idea that like all of new york city would shelter yeah. in place uh the new york stock exchange would shut down you know the buses would stop in the middle of Everybody the road and let people yeah. run down into fallout shelters um and then you know you go from bombers to missiles you go from atomic bombs to thermonuclear bombs and you go from tens scores uh, to hundreds then thousands and ultimately tens of thousands of nuclear weapons mm-hmm. um to the point where nuclear war is you know all but instantaneous mm-hmm. and it is unsurvivable and mm-hmm. so you sort of see these grand ambitious plans at the start of the um the the start of nuclear war the start of the cold war um where they sort of really do think about all of the nation being able to survive yeah. um and sort of it gradually shrinks and shrinks and shrinks until you get to the plans as they existed in the 1980s as they exist today which is basically talking about you know saving a thousand americans um you know and leaving the the rest to survive on their own yeah and it's yeah and that's the exact evolution of it it i'm trying to think of an analogy it almost um you could say early on it was almost like a plane that lost an engine it was like all right like you know 45 seconds till impact like all right you know put your head down it really almost is duck and cover right it's put your head down you know impact 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 and as it progressed to hypersonic missiles coming in from orbit with multi-megaton bombs it then turned into more of a car crash where it's you're driving you're driving when it happens to the time it's finished you haven't even realized it started yet and it's like you got to have airbags and you got to have seat belts but unless you're in that car everyone outside pedestrians dude there's no like clear the landing area it's like honk honk like you're dead right and that's and that's what always kind of chilled me the most was like it was like Eisenhower realizing just what it was, right? The tactician, the logistics master, just like telling people like, you know, there's so many great quotes or loose quotes. He's like, you don't understand. He was like, men will be nuts. People will be going crazy. This is going to happen in 1600 seconds. And we are going to go from today to bows and arrows in a matter of hours. Yeah. He was like, man will be mad. Nothing will work out. And it's kind of he did kind of i think that might have actually been the turning point it's i think you you mentioned it it was one of the soviet leaders he was like when i came into power i couldn't sleep for days because i knew these weapons existed and then i realized we couldn't ever use these and i started sleeping like a baby right and it's so there's a couple of the craziest things that's in your book that i still like research independently and i'll go with the first one is so on that mindset of going from plane crash to car crash to write these bigger and bigger bombs faster and faster you got to really hit the deck like that right there's no everybody get to shelter it's like mr president get down everyone else is dead 
Yep. You mentioned JFK talking to that journalist. You know, what do you mean? We have a hustling, bustling Soviet enclave three blocks from the White House. And JFK pauses, fork halfway between plate and mouth and says, you know, they have an atomic bomb in the Russian embassy. Sure. Why not? No, they do. They smuggled in the pieces in diplomatic pouches. Like, okay. He's like, do you know something I don't know? But what do you think about that? Because that does seem to be the that does seem to be the, the decapitation move is instantaneous. Yeah. Do you think there's any way that it's evolved around that today? It's a really good question. And you see this go through sort of a couple of different eras, right? So there, there is this fear that the Soviet embassy, um, you know, three blocks north of the White House on 16th Street in DC is potentially something uh, that uh, could have a small nuclear device in its attic. Mm -hmm. um, that rumor was widely believed during the Cold War. It has never been uh, conclusively proven, mm -hmm. um, and it may never be. Um, and that may not mean that it didn't exist, mm -hmm. um, but it at least uh, didn't exist. Uh, it, it, it hasn't been anything that U.S. intelligence has ever confirmed. Um, and then after the Cold War, you sort of see um, the continuity plans react to a couple of events in the 1990s. Um, the, the main one being uh, the, this Japanese uh, doomsday cult releases uh, basically homemade sarin gas yeah. in the Tokyo subway yeah. um, and kills an enormous number of people. Uh, although they sort of just slightly messed it up and so didn't kill tens of thousands of people. Um, but it, uh, that leads to the U.S. government really trying to think through basically like what happens if Washington is attacked on any given day. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, how do you you have a city where on a normal basis, the president, the vice president, other top officials are working in very uh, close proximity. And you may not actually have time or ability or redundancy such that they, that one of the top officials survives. Yeah. And so they begin to um, really try to build out the idea of basically a permanent reserve of people operating these facilities yeah. um, 24 hours a day that um, most people have sort of given up at the end of the Cold War. And then 9-11 happens, and this becomes sort of very obvious and very important to U.S. continuity planning and is the type of thing that you see the... Um, uh, you know, this is where Dick Cheney sort of disappears off yeah, right. the, the radar in the fall of 2001, yeah. um, heading off to undisclosed locations, um, which turn out, you know, years later, we realize that are sort of far less uh, dramatic than uh, than we might have realized because he's actually like off at fishing camps and hunting camps, yeah. um, you know, just in rural places where he's able to be low-key, low-profile mm -hmm. enough that he, he's sort of secure because people just don't know he's there. Yeah. Um, but he 
Um, it becomes this uh, sort of joke through the fall of 2001, and, and that's really due to the need to have someone able to survive one of the worst things that could happen. Yeah. Let's, let's segue that, because I was thinking, like, I actually didn't know the answer, and I realized, like, we are kind of in a peculiar spot. So for all future listeners, it's 4.18 p.m. It is November 10th, 2020. Right now, the 45th president is Donald J. Trump, and the 40th, or the president-elect is Joseph, Bi- Joseph R. Biden Jr. I was thinking, what are, or do you know, what are, how does all of this shift as we're in this, like, three-month, two-month gap between, do they start moving some people in? Do they have their reserve government? Is it, do they start getting priority? Because it's like, now he's the next in line. Do they start getting the the proverbial red, or not red phone, but, you know, the helicopter yep. landing on the rooftop and grab him. You know, you got to have the gold thing. And if you don't, get off. How does that play out? Do you, do you know that? Yeah. I don't. Um, so there, um, there's sort of a couple of things that, that take place right now. Um, you know, part of what I think we're sort of all learning right now is this uh, sort of schoolhouse rock uh, education in how our elections actually unfold. Yeah. Um, cool. So, you know, we the the media at this point as you said has projected Mm -hmm. that uh joe biden has won the presidency based on the informal unofficial counts from secretaries of state sure um there are sort of two legal moments when joe biden becomes the um the Mm president-elect Um, neither of which has happened yet, yeah. um, as you said it for uh, now for twenty one <laughs> on uh, on Tuesday afternoon. Yeah. Um, it, it, the first is the head of the GSA, which is basically the U.S. government's uh, real estate agency, mm-hmm. um, makes a legal determination uh, that Joe Biden is the president elect. And it's called an ascertainment. And it is just a letter saying, dear Joe, looks to me like you're the president-elect. Sure. And what that means is that's what officially unlocks the, uh, you know, what is still candidate Biden's access to the U.S. government. Okay. And so there are sort of a couple of things that that triggers. Um, one is access to federal transition dollars to pay for a transition staff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's government email addresses. It's government cell phones. It's government uh, office space. The good um, stuff. And then that sort of you know triggers some other parts of that where you know those transition documents become official government documents. You know that have to be retained by the National Archives. Mm-hmm. Yada yada yada. Mm-hmm. Um, it also unlocks the ability of the candidate to receive uh, the candidate and his staff really to begin to receive classified information. Uh-huh. And there, um, the, the Joe Biden has already been given a couple of uh, sort of courtesy briefings sure. by 
the team that does the um, the, the so-called President's Daily Brief, the PDB, that, that daily intelligence briefing. Um, but <clears throat> that document um, from the GSA then sort of allows him to get more routine briefings um, and, and begin to distribute those briefings to staff um, that he so designates and sort of things like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. The, um, as part of all of that, you also begin to see the Secret Service makes its own determinations, and they um, they have already begun to move, um, you know, a larger detail up to Wilmington, Delaware, mm -hmm. to uh, help secure the um, still technically candidate Joe Biden, with sure. the assumption that he will be the president-elect. Sure. Um, that trigger uh, sort of the Secret Service ultimately, um, it, you know, works with the FAA to uh, establish uh, national defense airspace over Joe Biden's house in Delaware. Um, and so, you know, in theory, there would now be combat air patrols um, from the Air Force um, or other law enforcement, you know, being able to intercept the president, you know, intercept planes. Um, and uh, I don't know if you can actually hear uh, those fighter, a fighter passing over. I was my about head to say right that's now. a little weird. Combat air patrol uh, over my house. <laughs> that's a little. That's a little wave to the NSA boys. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> um, <laughs> that's crazy. And then the second aspect of this is the electoral college will meet on December fourteenth, and uh, their votes to elect a uh, elect a president and a vice president is what begins the formal process that uh, of sort of the clock ticking down mm -hmm. to January 20th at noon when the Constitution says power shifts. shifts yeah. And, um, and, and so what that means is um, that formally establishes Joe Biden is the president-elect, and it establishes Kamala Harris as the vice president-elect. Okay, and that matters um, because should something happen to Joe Biden between December fourteenth and January twentieth, mm -hmm. um, then Kamala Harris would be sworn in uh, automatically on January twentieth as the surviving vice president-elect okay um it, you know we uh not to get sort of too out there and sort of science fiction-y wise um right now but like there is a very real and open and unsettled legal question of sort of what happens to the president-elect if he or someday she dies between sure. election day and the day of the electoral college sure. so that becomes a very messy very bad uh legal situation very quickly that gets hairy quick yeah i was gonna say i mean i don't know why i'm trying to give you advice you're the you're the best-selling author but man that would be a cool book if you did like yeah. i don't know like what it'd be name it i don't know 79 days or something you'd be like yeah. how does the life change you could go from just again i don't know why i'm giving you advice but how you laid out raven rock man you would just have it start from like cell phones changing to like you know fiber optics coming in to more guys around the house to all of a sudden like now there are no planes overhead and it's starting on this day that would be yeah. really cool how the whole apparatus changes and then yeah. 
Yeah, we'd slowly be, and then like, and now whenever this happens, you go to this bunker and you go to this bunker. Yep. That would be a really cool book. Again, I don't know why I'm trying to give you advice. You're, you're the author. Um, yeah. Yes, that's insane. Thank you for answering that question. Um, the other two other ones is um, the one that always stuck out in my mind because as much as I love nonfiction, my mind always drifts into the absurd and the magnificent and the awesome. The DUCC. The deep underground, excuse me, the deep underground command center. When I first heard that, I almost stopped listening to the book because I was like, "All right, this guy's just peddling like horseshit." I was like, "That's not real." I was like, "I would know about." In all of my ego, I was like, "I would know about that." The deep underground command center indeed was proposed to be three to four thousand feet below the Pentagon with a high speed. Uh, elevator, and again, I thought you didn't. I was like, "There's no way you got this right to survive two to three hundred megaton warheads." I was like, "The biggest in the, the next chapter." It's like, and remember, the biggest bomb ever was fifty megatons, and I was like, "Oh my god!" I was, I mean, like a crazy person on a sidewalk. Like the end is near. Or like you know, the good spread the good word. I was like, "Did you guys know about the deep underground command center?" Like you know, like a real sane person. But that's what I've kind of bringing it back to that a bomb in the Soviet embassy. I've always thought like that would be just with that paranoid Cold War planning. I feel like that's the ultimate end game is you would have something directly beneath your feet and you could just go straight down. Do you think that that was ever fleshed out more or do you think it really did die in the drawing board? So the the challenge of the duck, yeah, the UNCC, yeah. yeah. Um, so this was this was sort of the, roughly the Kennedy era, yeah, um, and it. The, the challenge that they basically ended up facing, which it remains sort of effectively insurmountable, um, is yes, you can dig a deeper hole and you can eventually get to a point that is so deep that it is untouchable by uh, yeah. even the largest nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. But what you're basically digging is a tomb yeah and that the if if once you sort of dig something so deep that it could withstand the largest nuclear attacks any nuclear attack anywhere close to that would destroy thoroughly um you know all of the communications apparatus Mm -hmm. all of the you know entry and egress tunnels that you could possibly dig Mm -hmm. um and would basically just create such a mound of rubble Mm -hmm. over top of the command center that it would be pointless that there would be sort of nothing uh the people inside would live but sort of to what end there would be nothing that, you know, they, they wouldn't be able to speak to anyone. They wouldn't be able to get in or out. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one would know that they were there. Mm-hmm. And so sort of it, it becomes this, like, you know, tautological, philosophical, <laughs> like, yeah. what happens if you have a government and no one knows it's there? Yeah, it doesn't um, exist. Yeah. And, uh, and the answer was a, no one was ever able to solve that. And, um, you know, I'm not sure, uh, frankly, that like anyone even today with, you know, decades of advancing technology and a lot more money and 
uh, you know, even today's most secret, high classified programs uh, has a better solution because, you know, you just sort of run up against this sort of basic problem of physics. Yeah. um, Where, um, you know, sort of all of the facets can't come together in a survivable way. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And I think you mentioned it in your book. It wasn't LeMay. It was like one of LeMay's right hand right hand men who is like, without my phone, I rule over my desk, which isn't very effective. He's like, the whole thing is communication. There's no point to, yeah, we survived, but to what end? You know, if it's there, no one knows it's there. Is it there? I don't know. Maybe you'd put in like your, your B team and it'd be like, you know, you are there on the off chance I die, like, you're the president. And I don't know, maybe someone would take that stand or take that that role. Um, yeah, you're right. There is just kind of like a certain physics that you can't, uh, you can't get away from with that. Um, I just lost my train of thought. Whatever. The other thing is Air Force One on 9-11, the RADA or JADA, the rocket-assisted takeoff. I had always, again because I'm a normal person and think about these things, I'd always wondered, I'm like, if there was a 747 that could do something insane, it would be Air Force One. And in your book, you cited several direct witnesses who said, you know, from the ground, police officers saying, I've never seen a 747 take off like nose over tail and rocket into the clouds. People on the plane were saying, like, why am I sitting like like a spaceship? And like, you know, someone on there, like a staffer saying there are two planes in the world that can do this and they're both Air Force One and it's obviously highly classified. Could you find, did you ever find out anything more about that or is this just a weird thing that I'm oddly interested in? But to me, that is the most insane thing ever. Um, uh, You are correct to be quite fascinated by it. Um, And uh, I uh, do know more about it than went into the book. Uh, And uh, I will leave it at that. Oh, Oh, how dare you? Oh, brutal. A true entertainer. My God. Oh, you... I you know I, I you know what Garrett Graff no longer my favorite author guys his po- his podcast is over. Um, yeah. um, it, it, it is uh, it, the uh, there is a special mechanism that you um, allude to there that I allude to in the book, mm-hmm. um, and it is uh, it has only been used once, and it was on nine eleven to take off from Sarasota, Florida, yeah. um, and we don't we don't know. Uh, it, it has never been otherwise discussed publicly, mm-hmm. um, and it uh, uh, and, and you know sort of one of the interesting questions is you know we are right in the midst of an upgrade to a new yep. Yep. Uh, Air Force One uh, style plane right now. Um, the uh, and it'll be sort of curious to know what uh, what sort of new security measures mm-hmm. end up going into that plane, which. I cannot believe they're changing the livery. Um, yeah, and my hope is, I actually was thinking about this the other day, I'm hoping that Joe Biden acts quickly is, to keep the livery the same. That is unforgivable. As everyone on this podcast knows, I am more conservative, but that is something that I cannot forgive any president. To take away that baby blue, that's, yep. to me, that's treason. I think you should be, I think you should be shot. That's terrible. You cannot do that. They're taking, they're turning it into a cheap airline. I saw that and I was like, okay, you know what? COVID's one thing. Human rights are another. I'm like, if you take that livery 
off that goddamn plane. <laughs> I that is is the most magic, but that is a rant for another podcast. Um, so one thing I thought about way back, this is episode two forty three, two forty four, way back in like episode forty, I was talking to a friend, a friend in the Air Force about Raven Rock, and he brought up a question that I never thought of, and it was um. What and you kind of touched on it though with the with the duck the D U C C is obviously I mean they had all these double features right walk in freezers that also acted as morgues and they had like armories they had allegedly straight jackets right they had alcohol to wean off senators right they had birth control so the, you mm-hmm. know you know in case D C just acted like D C you know they wouldn't have a population overrun. The question my friend brought up was. At some point, if they do emerge from their bunker, how do they rule over what is left? Do they have soldiers? Do they have weaponry? Because if you come out and it's just this Mad Max world of irradiated people, and you come out and you're like, I know that you guys haven't had written language in two generations. We are the leaders. And they're just like, they have they have nice skin kill them you know something like some barbaric stuff like that do you know did you ever did you ever touch in on that or is that just a, a weird thought but like what if you can how do you rule right how do you so, rule? yeah so there are sort of two things that are important to, to sort of talk about in this and and, and it, it's a really big important question um so the first is um you know even among the worst case scenarios of the Cold War all-out thermonuclear war, you end up with an America that has about 60 million people left, um, which is a country sort of, you know, roughly equivalent to France. Yeah. Um, So, like, not small. Um, Obviously, physically scattered. Yeah um uh, around the country um but that's a, that's still a pretty big country um and would sort of require um you know a real government to try to function mm-hmm. um and, and you know a, a lot of people i think when they sort of start thinking about this like you know they think that the, like the people in the bunker are going to be like the ones you know Remating and regrowing <laughs> the human race yeah. in the bunkers yeah. to come back above ground. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Dr. Sa- uh, yeah, Dr. Strange Love satire yeah. satirizes some yeah. of that. Yeah. Um, but that's really just not the reality of um, the uh, of sort of even the worst case scenarios of the Cold War. And, and obviously, like, that's still a really bad scenario. I mean, you're talking yeah. about, you know, 200 million people dying. Yeah. yeah. Um, An acceptable number of deaths. It, it, right. <laughs> um, but you were, you were talking about sort of the United States going, not being wiped off the face of the earth, but from going from a large country to a medium-sized country. Yeah. Um, and so that's where you have the need for the government to survive. Yeah. Um, and then sort of part of this answer, and this is one of the things that I just find sort of most fascinating about this whole world, and, and I always talk about this, and I always uh, sort of cite this when I'm, I'm talking about history, is the way that the 
planners during the Cold War sort of thought about this yeah. at a philosophical and spiritual level, which is, you know, one of the parts of the question that you were asking is, you know, if America is going to survive, um, if you're going to save America, what is America? Yeah. Is it the president? Is it the three branches of government? Is it Congress? Is it, you know, a certain set of, you know, state leaders and federal leaders and local leaders? Yeah. Um, and their answer was sort of like, yes to all of the above, sort of. But the real answer is America is just an idea. You know, we don't have a royal yeah. family, yeah. Um, a, a sort of single bloodline yeah. that you are supposed to be able to follow down century to century, yeah. um, you know, like the Windsor family in the UK. Yeah. You know, we don't have, um, you know, crowns or royal scepters or bejeweled thrones yeah. or anything like that that we sort of football. show you what... Uh, you know, show you who your sovereign is. Yeah. Um, what what we have are sort of these totems of history that have been handed down to us generation by generation. Yeah. Um, and we have this idea of sort of a country that is not founded on any single race, religion, ethnicity. Um, uh, you know, any sort of ancestral homeland of a people. Yeah. Um, and so what, what the planners sort of answered the question that you're asking um, obliquely in the Cold War was that we had to save these totems. Yeah. And so they came up with these plans to save and evacuate the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and the Lincoln's Gettysburg Address yeah. and George Washington's military commission. Yeah. Um, and, you know, um, if, if sort of one of my top two favorite facts is the $2 bill story, yeah. the other one that's sort of my favorite fact from this whole book project is the idea that there was like a specially trained team of park rangers uh, in Philadelphia during the Cold War, whose job it was to evacuate the Liberty Bell. Yeah, yeah. And that sort of, I, I have this sort of picture in the sort of Christopher Guest movie version of the apocalypse of like these park rangers like driving off into the Appalachian Mountains with the Liberty Bell swinging in the back of a pickup dong, truck and like getting dong, to their evacuation dong. facility. And be like, no, 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 we swear the crack was there before <laughs> we left Philadelphia. Um, and, and sort of their idea was, uh, you know, that it's those totems yeah. that after war will show America that this is still America. Yeah. Um, and, and I sort of think of it in the context of, you know, the Independence Day movie where you have Bill Pullman standing in the back of that pickup truck, yeah. you know, sort of rallying people in yeah. the desert. Um, you know, tomorrow will be the Independence Day for the world. Yeah, yeah. And like, what their question was, was what does Bill Pullman need to hold up in that moment in the back of the pickup truck in the middle of nowhere yeah. to say, I'm the president, we still are a country, we are still a people. And so their answer was, you know, 
the Constitution yeah. and the Declaration of Independence yeah. and the Liberty Bell. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it, to me, it was just sort of this incredible moment of sort of coming to understand like what, what America really is and what, it, what it is is it's these institutions it's these sort of practices and norms and traditions of democracy that we inherit from previous generations and we hand down to the next generation you know that like our ancestors sort of fought and guarded and built a rule of law. Yeah. And that our job is that we inherit the rule of law and we care for it and we tend it and then we hand it off to our children. That's And like, there is no rule of law. Like there's no like gavel that I can yeah. like hand you that says like, see, this is still the rule of law. Yeah. Like it's this idea that like if like you are told to do something, that like that means something. Yes. Um yes. and that we sort of all have to buy into these institutions yes. and we all have to care for them. And then we sort of have to hand them off to the next generation um as undamaged as we can. Yes. Um, yes. And, and so, like, in some ways, like, the question that you ask of, like, how do you emerge from the bunker and tell people that you are the ruler again is, like, the fundamental question of American history. Yeah. And it is, in some ways, like, answered in this deeply profound and moving way by these planners who realize, like, saving America isn't about a person or a people uh, or a group of people it's about like how do you save the idea of uh, america i got i got goosebumps when you were describing that because i never thought about it. when i because i as i started this conversation i was like yeah silly things like these like, yeah these totems but as you're saying that it's like well you're right there can't oval office that's going to be vaporized Right. There's no lapel that you hand over or that uh, pin that you hand over. Yeah. And it is like, yeah, you do need these things. It's a it's an item to rally behind. Right. It's it's the cross appearing in the sky above the Battle of Lepanto. It's right. It's like, what is our thing? What is our what is our, our sword or our spear that pierced Christ's side? Right. It's these physical things. And yeah, it's like I just imagine like in an irradiated earth. Like everyone dead, like two miles underground somewhere. There's like a couple people, and then there's just like this helium-filled bulletproof glass of like the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and there's just like the Liberty Bell, and like on top of the crack, now half of it is just like black because like the thermal pulse hit it right before the doors closed, right? And it's like there's some toke, right? Maybe maybe there's some like cesium on the side of it or something, and it's like. Those actually do have a lot of value. And yes. I, I had never thought about that until you said that. I thought it was silly, but now I'm like I'm like, oh, that's beautiful. Um yeah, I've only got you for two more minutes, and obviously I could talk to you for a hundred hours, but I'll be respectful of your time. That's I don't know, man. I got goosebumps thinking about that. I was like, that is the most beautiful thing. And you're right, and it's even now, and that's one thing I keep trying to point to in this year. It's like 2020. It, you know, everyone's like, it's done. America's over. I keep thinking like, okay, well, first of all, the beginning of America, we were supposed to be over before we started. 
all right? And then we are supposed to be over in World War II or after Pearl Harbor. And then the Cuban Missile Crisis. And then a year later, they iced the president in Dallas. And then, or they being whoever, it doesn't matter, the president was killed. And then we still got through the rest of the Cold War. Then we got through 9-11. And then we got through the 08 crisis, right? And then, by God, we elected a black president and everything just, it kept going, right? And then Donald Trump, by God, is president. And now it's like COVID, riots, what's going on? Is China encroaching on us? The climate's going up and are we running out of fossil fuel? And it's just this whole morphing thing. But at like the very core, there's just like this thing that like will keep going forward, right? And it doesn't, everything around it, the outer peripheries of the onion might get obliterated and ablated, but there's just this thing that like inches forward and it's like just the notch of the president. It's just, think another hole, 46. And it just, and you don't know everything around it could, I mean, the twin towers can come down, the Pentagon can get hit with a plane, but it's still just like, it's like that clock that Bezos bought and put it in a cave somewhere. It's like this crystal clock that's supposed to run for 10,000 years. And it's like everything else may die, but this thing is just... And I'm just... I love your book, man. I, 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 I'm i at 45 minutes on the nose. I love your book. It is... It, to everyone... I recommend a lot of books on this podcast. I have on a lot of authors. If there is one book, My God in Heaven, Raven Rock by Garrett M. Graff, I will put it in the description. I will put it in the, in the top comment. I'm going to make the thumbnail, the photo of the book. Listen to it because it doesn't matter what you believe in. It's the most chilling. It's it's crazier than any sci-fi. It is every, and I touched on a couple of my favorite questions. There are a thousand more that any of you listening will. I mean, it'll it will change the way you look at everything. It really did for me. And now I'm just fanboying. So, <laughs> Mr. Graf, thank you so much. I'm the biggest fan of yours. I have to ask you before you go, what's in the works? So I'm actually um, uh, uh, working on a new book that I hope will come out next year or the year after um, that is a history of Watergate, um, uh, uh, sort of a soup to nuts, start to finish uh, narrative of uh, Watergate, which which has been a tremendously fun project to work on in part because it is also a much crazier and weirder story than any of us remember um and there's a lot more to it than five burglars and yeah, uh, a um, yeah. so it's been uh, it's been a fun project to work on um and uh, there's a lot of new history uh, actually out there to be told about it if there's anyone that could tell the story it's you i again at this point i'm just kissing your ass you were my i, I love your work man i and this is my podcast is yours you have a running appointment you tell me when you come on it's yours it's very small right now but god willing this becomes a huge podcast one day you have a just you have a running appointment with me you tell me i will boot off whoever is in line sorry grandma get out of here get out. <laughs> i love your work man i'm All gonna right. stop i'm gonna stop just praising you now it's getting weird take care god bless well, god bless so america me. thank you man thank you so much take care god bless america everybody stay safe love each other peace right. have a great day you too buddy